morning. Thank you for Deb and Kathy for reading our scripture this morning. Uh, please remain seated, remain standing, excuse me, while we uh, read God's word. Uh, we thank you for, for coming this morning. Uh, Pastor Evan is in Wisconsin with his family, visiting Grace's side with the new baby Lucy. So we pray for a safe travel for them. My name's Larry Babb. I'll be uh, Pastor Evan's stunt double this morning. And our scripture reading is from Psalm 18. If you do not have a Bible, there's one in a chair underneath your seat. Please take that home. Or if you know someone who needs a Bible, please uh, take that as our gift to you. Ladies. Alrighty. Please remain standing as you are able. Debbie and I are going to read the scripture this morning. It's Psalm 18. We have Bibles underneath your chairs if you would like to follow along. It is on page 502. It's a long chapter, so we're going to tag team. All right. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and my horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, and torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water out of the brightness before him. Hailstones and coals of fly fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the last of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statues I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. 
With the purified, you show yourself pure, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who lights my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I trust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like a mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be God. Thank you, ladies. You may be seated. I will call upon the Lord. It's a relatively new hymn, first published in 1981, yet it became very popular. So much so it appears in 16 hymnals, including the Baptist hymnal at number 498. It was written by Michael O'Shields, a young minister traveling throughout Oklahoma and Texas in the 1970s. He struggled to make ends meet. And there were, things were especially tough when the contributions were meager. So Shields always felt some very tangible needs when he called upon the Lord. The song's energetic pace might lead one to believe that O Shields was in an upbeat mood when he wrote that hymn, but he was likely feeling quite the opposite 
deep down, although he had joy in proclaiming the gospel, O'Shields no doubt felt beleaguered at times, but he was encouraged by David's own experience being overwhelmed by adversity. And I think those many of us today can realize these same feelings. So O'Shields was inspired by the words that David wrote in Psalm 18 as a praise to God when he had been saved from his enemies. O'Shields adapted Psalm 18 as his own petition to God, a hymn of provision and thanksgiving. Now David knew all about being harassed at every turn with no relief in sight. King Saul chased David all across the land, intent on murdering the young man who had served him faithfully for years. David then exiled himself among the Philistines until the death of Saul, when it was safe for him to return to Israel. And while there's no definitive timeline uh, specified in Scripture, some Bible scholars speculate that David was on the run somewhere between seven or eight years from his home. Psalm 18 is the fourth longest psalm in the Bible, and it is one of ten psalms written by David as he reflects upon his time as a moving target for King Saul and numerous foreign adversaries. Years later as king, David would again have to flee from Absalom, his son, when he rebelled against his father, seeking the throne of Israel for himself. Psalm 18 is nearly identical to the song that David sings in 2 Samuel 22. It is likely that David composed this psalm as a younger man, but he could look back in his age with the same gratitude to sing this song again. God had continued to protect David during his 40-year reign as the king of Israel. And even though this psalm is written from the perspective of a warrior beset by enemies in a military context, I believe it also provides a number of applications that you and I can make in our own lives today. The first of which is God's protection, as seen in verses 1 to 19. God, excuse me, David starts off with the statement, I love you, O Lord, which is a great place to start any prayer or petition, by the way. David then goes on to use a variety of word pictures uh, that describe what God means to him. He uses words like, my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. By these proclamations, David is acknowledging that it was God alone he trusted to save him from his enemies. David was quick to express his love, his devotion to the God that had not only delivered him, not only rescued him from his trials, 
but also for all that had God had done in and through the trials that came his way. David was not bitter against God, as if to say, well, it's about time you got me out of this. No. Instead, David was grateful that the years of trouble had done something good and necessary in his life. David then describes the plight in very colorful language. Cords of death encompassed me. Torrents of destruction assailed me. Snares of death confronted me. David was not only in danger of physical death, but also spiritual ruin. As a man running for his life, it would have been easy to behave in an ungodly way in order to survive. The end justifies the means, as the old saying goes. David may well have been tempted to take a moral shortcuts to improve his situation. We even see him resort to some questionable, deceptive tactics in dealing with the Philistine king, Achish, in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 27. But generally, David conducts himself in an honorable manner, even refusing to kill King Saul on two occasions and turning away from murdering the wicked man Nabal for a perceived slight. God did not take away the hardships in David's life. Rather, God preserved David through those hardships. And God will do the same for you and me, even if we do not see the immediate evidence of God's protection, we can trust that is there based on the evidence of lives of people around us and in Scripture. As a nameless, faceless, disposable cog in the corporate machine, I had several occasions in the last 32 years to experience the loss of employment. Each episode has been unpleasant and traumatic, to say the least. But in hindsight, I see that God brought about the end of every job for my ultimate benefit. Staying in those positions would have meant either relocating to another state, working for new management who would require some very unethical business practices, or having a boss who is determined to blame me for the failings of my predecessor. And even when we do not fear for our lives, we should still seek the Lord's protection from those personal decisions and external situations that can lead to our spiritual downfall. Not the loss of our salvation, for that is secure, but avoiding lifestyle choices that will undermine our fellowship with God. You and I may not currently be pursued by people with swords and spears, as David was, but we have dangerous enemies just the same. One such enemy is our own flesh. Our sin nature with which we were born constantly seeks to have its way over the prompting of the Holy Spirit 
that tries to guide us in living lives that glorify Jesus. If we give free reign to our natural desires, you and I will find ways to justify wickedness and become convinced that God doesn't really mind. Another in the immediate against you is the world. The fallen world in which we live conducts itself in opposition to Christ. Abandon godly wisdom and rely upon the common sense of the age, the world counsels. Reject the word of God and trust in the philosophies of man, the world proclaims. Cast aside the outdated moral code of your grandparents and conform instead to the latest dictates of popular culture, urges the world. The world advertises that it can meet all your needs better than God. It wants to instill a sense of lack or an a, uh, absence of contentment. Even the most innocent. How many of you have read a magazine or seen a magazine called Better Homes and Garden? Question is, better than what? Better than what you've got, Larry. And if you get this magazine, you can improve your home and garden. The world seeks to instill a sense that I don't have enough, or what I do have is not enough. The world advertises it can satisfy all your needs, and there are no pesky rules or restrictions to hold you back from getting what you want. Those of us who were alive in the 60s may remember the prevailing slogan, if it feels good, do it. The world encourages us to do that. Regrettably, the harmful effects of that mindset still linger more than half a century later. The truth is, the world is incapable of delivering on its promise. The broken world around us was never designed to fill the role that only Jesus alone can do. Christ is our salvation, and he is our satisfaction. The third adversary we face is Satan himself. A malicious angel who wants to weaken your trust in Jesus. A wicked creature who seeks to undermine your witness so that others will reject Jesus because of your conduct and mine. He is a villain who scores every point every time we are silent and refuse to share the gospel with someone who desperately needs to hear it. But the good news is, these three enemies are on the losing side of history. Jesus has already overcome our sin nature and made us into new creations no longer must we yield to the ways of the old man the things we used to do jesus is also bringing about a new heaven and a new earth everything that the present world has to offer you is going to pass away it will be replaced by something better and something eternal it's worth waiting on.
And scripture reveals that Satan is already a defeated foe. His sentence has been pronounced and his time is coming to an end. We see in this passage that David cries to God in his distress. The dangers he faces is no less real. But then he goes on to describe the Lord coming to his rescue in a very dramatic, poetic fashion. The earth reels and rocks. The mountain trembles and quakes at God's anger. Storm clouds surround the Lord. Hailstones and coals of fire rain down. Arrows and lightning scatter David's enemies. That's someone I'd like to have in my corner when things are tough. You may not have experienced God answering your prayers in such a dramatic fashion, but one thing you can be sure of is that God is in control of your situation and stands ready to deliver you through your crisis. I'd like to direct your attention to verse 13, where David calls God the Most High. This is El Elyon. It is a powerful title that refers not to God's location, but to God's position. Most High identifies God's absolute and uncontested sovereignty over heaven and earth. Simply put, Most High proclaims God has the right to rule. And as the Most High, God is above every power and every authority, above every man, beast, and angel. He takes counsel from no one, and he is accountable to no one. God is not voted into office, and he has no term limit. He cannot be impeached. Everyone and everything is subject to God and God alone. So when you and I are against insurmountable odds, we need not rely upon our own strength and cleverness. God has the authority over every problem that you and I will face. And as much as we may love God, God loves us more. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, Deliverance from sin, deliverance from evil propensities, deliverance from spiritual enemies. Each deliverance bears evidence of God's love to us. How much he delights in you, it is not possible to say. The Father delights in you and looks upon you with doting love. Like as a father takes pleasure in his child, so does he rejoice over you. Which brings us to the second application of our passage. Not only do we have God's protection, but we also have God's equipping, as found in verses 20 to 42. David was born a shepherd, and he died a king. In the decades between, God made David into a warrior without equal in his day. The poetry of Psalm 18 describes this transformation. God brightens my darkness. By God, I can run against a troop. 
By God, I can leap over a wall. God is a shield. God equipped me with strength. He trains my hands for war. He has given me the shield of salvation. God's right hand has supported me, and his gentleness has made me great. David is clear that he did not accomplish these victories on his own. God equipped David in such a way that he was able to fulfill the tasks that God set David out to do. Specifically, making Israel safe from foreign enemies through the waging of war. Now, most of us are not soldiers. But Jesus still has important work for us to do. To that end, Jesus will equip you and I sufficiently and uniquely to perform that work. First, by bestowing spiritual gifts, as stated in passages such as 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gift is for a purpose, for service and ministry. And second, by raising up leaders to prepare us for service, as stated in Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Jesus invested three years equipping 12 disciples so that they would in turn equip other Christians. You and I are called to be disciples who make disciples. We are responsible and accountable to use our gifts and to submit ourselves to the teaching of God's word so that we might be used by Jesus in the building of his church. We have work to do. Then David makes some statements in Psalm 18 that may rub some people the wrong way. David speaks of his righteousness, being rewarded for clean hands, having kept the ways of the Lord, and not departing from God. These proclamations may seem a little arrogant at first, especially since we know that David had an affair with Bathsheba and murdered husband Uriah. This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He, David then angered God by ordering a census in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Bible scholar Adam Clark once noted that the times in which David was most afflicted were the times of his greatest uprightness. Adversity was always to him a time of spiritual prosperity. While David was under attack from his enemies, his reliance upon God was at its highest. But it was when David was in a place of relative safety that his failings occurred. David should have been at war, but he had withdrawn from his troops in order to stay home. It was during this time that he began his extramarital affair with Bathsheba. David also became lax in his faith. Instead of trusting God, he was tempted by Satan to number 
his fighting men in the census, relying upon human hands to give him victory instead of God. But we see when confronted with his sin, David does something different than many of us. We see in 2 Samuel 12, David said to Nathan, the prophet who was sent by God to confront David, I have sinned against the Lord. He was quick to admit it. And regarding his sin in numbering the people, David was given his choice of the consequences. Three years of famine, three months of devastation by his foes, or three days of the sword of the Lord, which was going to be a pestilence. David answered this in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 13. Then David said to Gad, another prophet who confronted David, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. When he repents, he's quick to do so, puts himself at God's mercy. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't blame someone else. He owns his sin and asks for forgiveness. And God is faithful. There are still consequences, we know. But God is quick to restore the fellowship that was broken by his sin. The Bible records that God judged David very sternly for his sin. But after God, as a God after man's own heart, David was determined to keep himself from iniquity, even as he occasionally stumbled. You and I must likewise diligently pursue spiritual excellence. That does not happen without continuous confession and repentance. We all sin every day. That is our nature that we seek to overcome through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life and through the grace and the mercy and the power of God. Charles Spurgeon said this on the matter. Be resolved in the power of the Holy Spirit that this particular sin shall be overcome. There is nothing like hanging it up by the neck, that very sin I mean. Do not fire at sin indiscriminately. But if thou hast one sin that is more to thee than another, drag it out from the crowd and say, Thou must die if none other does. I will hang thee up in the face of the sun. Expose it. Get rid of it. One sin at a time. We must keep in mind that David was a broken human being. He was subject to sin as much as you and I. But by in contrast to many of us, we never see David making the same mistake twice. That's a character trait I would like to develop in my own life. The key is to follow David's example and be quick to confess and repent of our sin, always seeking first and foremost to be reconciled with God. Benjamin Franklin once observed, many princes sin with David, but few repent with him. Finally, we not only see God's protection and God's equipping in Psalm 18, we also see God's blessings. Verses 43 to 50. 
David trusted in the Lord's protection from his enemies, and he labored faithfully under the Lord's equipping. The result was that God gave David victory and established him as king of Israel. God's work in and through David was complete. He had God's favor. He had God's blessing. Can the same be said of you or me? Are we trusting in God's protection or are we relying upon something else? Maybe a job or the stock market, perhaps your spouse or the government. Are we allowing God to equip us today to be used in ministry or are we content to let that service God has for us lie unfinished? The ultimate blessing that lies before you and me is the fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ. To that end, we're going to need God's protection. For there are enemies who will oppose us. Satan, the world, our own sin nature. We're going to need God's equipping. For the work at hand is difficult. And our natural abilities are not adequate for the task. As we are equipped... We begin to labor for Christ's kingdom. The blessings we receive are not riches or material comfort, but the joy of service, the joy of our Lord, to see our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates come to saving knowledge of the gospel. To follow Jesus and to see our community brought to the saving knowledge of the gospel, we need to practice steadfast obedience. Obedience to the Lord's word like never before. Charles Spurgeon also said, If any of you have thought that trusting Christ does not involve obeying him, you have made a great mistake. They do very wrong who cry up believing in God, and yet depreciate obedience to him for obeying is believing in a different form and springs out of believing let's have a word of prayer dear heavenly father lord you are a great and awesome god lord we thank you for preserving your word for us we thank you lord for what you did in david's life that we can have hope that we can see that trust justified lord give us that kind of faith help us to be more obedient Lord, make us quick to recognize when sin is cropping up in our life to be quick to confess it quick to repent it we thank you lord for being the great god that you are and for loving us so much and we come to in jesus name amen if you are a christian you may sometimes wonder why God allows suffering and adversary, adversity to come your way. If so, consider how God will use that circumstance to strengthen you. Can you, in the midst of a crisis, declare your love for Jesus and rely upon him as your rock and fortress? Are you eager to be equipped by him, to be used by him in the building of his kingdom? Do you hold Jesus and his gospel as your sole motivation and your sole message? When you find yourself immersed in evil days, I encourage you to 
resists the urge to become withdrawn, to become bitter, to become dejected. Instead, ask Jesus how you might best glorify him in this difficult circumstance. It is precisely during dark times that the light of Christ shines brightest in the world without hope, and that is through his church. Who knows how many people will observe how you bear up under such trying circumstances, and they may seek to know or be receptive to learn what makes you different. You and I must be ready in season and out of season to be prepared to preach the word of hope and salvation to a lost and dying world. This is a task before us. Or maybe you're here today and you're skeptical of what the Bible says. One day I was, up until age 19. Perhaps you have determined that the hardship and the evil in the world is proof that there cannot be a loving God. I would ask you to consider that good must also exist in contrast to the evil that you see around you. And if there's a way to know good from evil, there must be a moral law that defines it. Such a moral law cannot be subjective, changing from person to person, because the thief, the liar, the murderer, the rapist, they see nothing wrong with what they do. No, the moral law must be objective. It must be true for all people of every nation throughout all of history. In such case, there has to be a moral lawgiver who is both eternal and transcendent above human weaknesses and, and failings. A lawgiver who can rightly judge your actions as mine as good or evil. The hope that Christians have in the gospel is that such a God exists. And this God loves you and me so much that he has compassion on our broken state and he has sent his son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of mankind. God forgives all our wrongdoing when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So although this may seem counterintuitive, the existence of evil in the world actually provides the evidence you may be seeking that such a loving God does exist. And David's testimony in Psalm 18 this morning demonstrates that. I'd welcome an opportunity uh, to talk with you after the service if you have questions about the gospel. And right now, uh, it is time in our service where Christians celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection with the Lord's Supper. We memorialize what Jesus has done already on our behalf. And we rejoice in what he's going to do through this body of believers. If you consider Bayless your church family, or if you are visiting today from a church that preaches the same gospel, then I invite you to have a moment of quiet reflection before our Lord, and then join us for communion. If you're not a Christian, I ask that you hold off taking the Lord's Supper at this time. Not that I want to keep anything from you, but I would instead invite you to accept what Jesus has done on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins, and then make a decision to follow him.
There's going to be a couple of prayers on, on the monitors a little later to help you guide you if you are feeling that the Lord is speaking to you this morning. I will also be available after this service uh, to speak with you more if you have other questions or what it means to become a Christian. This is also a time when Christians worship by giving back to God a portion of what he has entrusted us with for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Christ in this community. There will be plates back on the the communion tables uh, for your offering. Also, uh, if you have prayer requests, uh, please fill out this Connect card and drop that in there. If this is your first time visiting with us, we'd love to have a record of your attendance with us. And if you'd put as much contact information as you're comfortable, we'd love a chance to get with you in the coming week to see how best we can uh, minister to you, learn a little about your uh, situation. Anyway, for, for the giving, the Bible gives, uh, the New Testament gives no uh, dollar amount. It is between you and God. God does ask that uh, just as Jesus has been generous, sacrificial, and joyful in his sacrifice for us, that our giving to the kingdom-building work also be full of joy, sacrifice, and generous. If you are visiting us today, please do not take this as an obligation. This is something that people who consider Bayless their home and family do for our ministry here. We would not want to rob you of the joy if you would like to contribute, but just understand it is not an obligation. Uh, So right now, as we have a moment of quiet reflection, uh, do business with God, and when you're ready, you can go back to either table, either side of the uh, auditorium, and uh, pick up the elements from the table, uh, bring them back to your seats, and we will take the uh, Lord's Supper together.